Let us hear God's word from 1 Samuel 28, verse 1. Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war, to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. So David said to Achish, Surely you know what your servant can do. Achish said to David, Therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Now Samuel died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah, in his own city, and Saul had put the mediums and spiritists out of the land. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. And Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, and you may go to her and inquire of her. The servant said to him, In fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, Please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me any more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may reveal to me what I should do. Then Samuel said, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? The Lord has done for himself as he has spoke by me, as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I have kept my life in my hands, have put my life in my hands, and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant. And let me set a piece of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. So his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he heeded their voice. Then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, 
and she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And they rose and went away that night. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. <coughs> Amen. Well, we begin this chapter with David in a tight spot, you might say. His living by fear that we saw in chapter 27, his half-truths to Achish, and in that case, they, I think, should be understood in a sinful sense, uh, now brings him to really this point of having to fight Israel. Broadly speaking, our lack of faith, our lack of obedience can also leave us in a tight spot. Now, we have to wait till chapter 29 to continue this part of the story. Instead, we interrupt the story in verse 3. And now the author is primarily comparing Saul and David. David has sinned, and he's ended up in this fix. Saul lives by fear as well, but he's going to end up dead. Saul's half or excuse me, David's half-truths are sinful. Saul's necromancy is worthy of capital punishment. David is forgiven by God. Saul is ignored by God and is even an enemy, and he is judged. Even in verse 6, where Saul initially seeks God's direction, he quickly turns away when God does not answer, and he turns to a sinful solution. This contrast is very stark. David is far from perfect, as is true for any believer. But there is a fundamental difference between David and Saul, between a true believer who sins and an unbeliever, even one who goes to church regularly, as Saul would have done. Saul here then swears by Yahweh that he would not uphold God's law and remove this witch. What an audacious thing on his part. Then he asked for her to speak to Samuel, to call him up. So we pick up now um, in verse 12. So again it says, When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. All right, <clears throat> I wasn't quite sure where to put this in the message, but I thought, well, why don't we start with it? Uh, obviously, this passage raises all kinds of questions for us, and there are questions that we are not going to be able to answer completely, and I'm sure the questions I attempt to answer are going to raise even more questions. <laughs> but, first of all, this actually did happen. If we believe in the authority of the scriptures, this actually did happen. This woman called for Samuel, and he actually came. This isn't just a story. Okay? It wasn't just some you know, ghost. It isn't just the woman pretending. It actually happened. And so notice some implications here. First of all, we still exist when we die. Now, I'm preaching to the choir here. We understand that, okay? But do you see how this is being taught in the Old Testament? Even among some conservative scholars, you will hear that the Old Testament doesn't really teach about the afterlife. Well, here you go. It does. 
Maybe not as clearly as the New Testament, but it still has it, and here it is. Notice also that in the afterlife, we are still aware. We still have understanding. Samuel here is going to speak the very words he spoke when he was alive. He's not saying anything really that's fundamentally different. Now, verse 19 is something new, but still, he is speaking as he would have on earth. You remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 22 and that crazy question from the Sadducees about uh, who will this woman be married to because of the Levert law and all these things and the seven husbands and such. And he says, look, God's the God of the living, not of the dead. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So even that is indicating that in the Old Covenant, they believed that we have life after death. Now, again, that's pretty straightforward for us. But secondly, notice that necromancy is real. You often hear people say that the spirit world either does not exist or we don't encounter it or something like that, or it's just something that happened at special times in history, especially at the coming of Christ. Well, there's no question that there was an an elevated amount of activity at the coming of Christ, but um, this is real. It is probable that the woman was known for being false. Okay? She said, like we have today, yeah, I can communicate with the dead, but she's just taking your money and pulling the wool over your eyes. But just because she may have done that on some occasions, just because some people do that today, does not mean that the spirit world and encountering it is something that does not happen. And in this particular case, we have, again, the authority of scripture. This, this happened. She did encounter Samuel. And maybe it was in a way that she hadn't experienced before or something she wasn't expecting, but look at her response. Not just, hey, (laughs) you're Saul and you deceived me, but it seems to be highlighting the fact that she was a bit surprised by what's going on. I've spoken to you on other occasions that uh, I have seen and experienced the spiritual world. And I would argue that every one of us have too. We just aren't aware of it necessarily. And, um, and so here you have this woman experiencing it, and of course Saul is there, and Samuel, and so forth. Uh, as I was preparing this, I was reminded of a time when I was in high school, and some of my friends were um, interested in play, playing the Ouija board. And I knew enough at that time that I wasn't going to participate at all. But I did sit and watch them, and um, I, I think it actually worked. I don't think that it was just a a ruse or anything like that. This stuff is real. Be careful with it. Saul is going to end up dead in less than 24 hours for sure, in large measure because of what he does here. God does not want us to do this, in part because he's trying to protect us. This is serious stuff. Now, thirdly, when we, talk, when we see something like this, where someone who has died comes back, it raises questions for us. Does this mean that our dead loved ones know that what we are doing now? Okay, how many times do you see at a ball game or something, you know, somebody hits a home run or scores a touchdown, they point to the sky, you know, like, hey, Grandma, did you see what I did? You know, is that really what's happening? 
When you go to the graveside to your loved one, does my mom actually hear me if I try to talk to her? There are many people, many professing Christians, that comfort themselves with that thought. It's very, very common. Is it true that our loved ones are helping us, watching us, guiding us along? Well, we could spend our whole time on that question alone. Let's turn briefly here to 1 Peter chapter 1 and uh, just touch on this point briefly. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is talking about this great salvation that God has given to us and it's preserved for us in heaven and so forth, but we suffer now momentarily until that is brought about in its fullness. But then in verses 10 and following, He talks about how the prophets gave their words of prophecy and then tried to figure it all out. When when is Messiah coming? Who is he going to be? And how is it going to happen? And so forth. And so that's his point there in verses 10 to 12. But notice how it ends. Things which angels desire to look into. So we we are told by that statement right there that angels are watching what's going on here on earth. Now, we know from other passages, they're doing more than just watching. God uses them to benefit us and bless us and protect us and so forth in various ways. But we certainly can say that the angelic beings are watching what's going on, maybe even hearing what we are saying and and so forth. Let's turn back here a little bit to Hebrews and chapter 12. This is a passage that people often turn to, to... Um, uh, justify this view that our loved ones are watching us and listening and so on. And Hebrews 12, verse 1, very familiar verse here. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us and so forth, right? So who are these witnesses? Well, the word for witness here is connected with chapter 11. In chapter 11, verse 39, for example, it says, and all these having obtained a good testimony, or you could say witness, through faith, did not receive the promise, and so forth, right? So the point is that the author of the Hebrews is connecting these witnesses that are surrounding us with chapter 11, and all these men and women of faith that went before us. So should we take that to mean then that they're, you know, as we're sitting in a stadium just watching us, listening to us? Are we surrounded by witnesses in that way, the the saints who have gone before us? Well, some people take it that way. Um, I'm not sure you have to take it that way, uh, but some people do. Uh, Certainly we are surrounded metaphorically. These people went before us, and we too then need to live this life of faith, and lay aside the sin and run with endurance and so forth. So there's certainly some question there. If you come back to 1 Samuel 28, uh, notice how Samuel responds in verse 15. He says, Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Now that could mean... You know, Samuel's annoyed. Saul, why did you do this? It could also mean 
Why did you do this? I don't know what's going on. And if it is the latter, then this would indicate to us that Samuel is not sitting around watching Saul or watching the events in Israel. That actually Saul is interrupting his bliss of the next life and he needs to be brought up to speed, so to speak. Do you see how this raises questions and even raises more questions? My approach, and I'm certainly not alone, um, is to say, look, there is so much about the next life and the afterlife that we do not know about. So let us be content with being agnostic about some things. Let's focus on the things that are sure and certain. And ultimately, let's focus on God. Okay. Is my mom watching me now, listening to me now? Maybe. But in one sense, it doesn't matter. What matters is God's watching me. God is listening, and that's what should concern us, living before our God in a way that honors him. That's what's most important. God sends angels on occasion to help us, certainly more often than we realize. Maybe Samuel knew what was happening. His words suggest otherwise, and even when he speaks, most of what he says he already said when he was on earth. And so there is much uncertainty here, but again, I think our focus needs to be on God. Samuel's going to call our attention to God. Saul is trying to look elsewhere, of course. We are not to look for forms of divination. We are to focus on the scriptures. In fact, when we go to the graveside and talk to our dead loved one, that really is a form of divination. We are to go to the graveside of our loved one, remember things about them, and talk to God, not to the dead loved one. Okay. Now, I, I know I sound like some crazy person just because you hear so much of the other in our culture today, even among professing Christians. Even if they can hear us. God doesn't want us to talk to the dead. He wants us to talk to him. So, <clears throat> a few thoughts here in this way. All right, now let's come back to the storyline, and I'll bring up a few more things as we go along. The key here, though, of course, is that Saul is being disobedient to God. And Saul then deserves judgment. The woman here... As Samuel comes, then realizes who is before her, and that is Saul. Maybe she was given a spiritual sight and could see through Saul's disguise. Uh, maybe Samuel said something that made it clear that Saul was there. You know, whatever it was, she now realizes that Saul is with her, and she's afraid. Just like we saw last week in verse 9. And so notice then how Saul responds. Verse 13, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? <laughs> okay. No, don't worry about that. Now, what do you see? That's most important. <laughs> and the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. In verse 10, Saul quite arrogantly assures this woman, calling on Yahweh. 
to not uphold Yahweh's word. Well, he's doing the same thing here, it's just not quite so involved. He still is refusing to obey God. He is so consumed with his desires that he is ignoring God, and he insists on hearing from this witch. Now let me pause here a moment and have us see God's grace, at least the opportunity for grace. Saul is being, can you say, stymied? At least cautioned and warned. At least Saul is supposed to stop and reflect on what he's doing. Do you see that? Saul asked for help from his servants, and they did not do it. They said, okay, yeah, hey, there's a witch over in Endor. That's just a few miles away. Let's, let's go there. They, they don't force Saul to stop and think about what he's doing. But the witch does twice. In verse 9, hey, you know, Saul, Saul said we can't do this, you know, and she's trying to stop this from happening. Now, Saul reassures her, and she continues, but now again, she's like, you're Saul, and, and she's wanting to stop, and he's like, no, it's okay, it's okay. But you see how Saul could have repented here. He could have stopped what he was doing, but he doesn't. He refuses to turn from his sin. Now, God usually uses fellow believers to encourage us to stop from doing something sinful. But sometimes he uses unbelievers, too. We have every reason to believe that this woman was a Canaanite woman and not an Israelite woman. And even if she were an Israelite woman, she's living in sin. She's a witch here. And, and, and yet God is using this evil person to try to stop evil, at least in this kind of way. And now she keeps going. She's going to face her own judgment. But do you see how God is using her? Like God used Abigail for David, God is using this witch for Saul. There is an opportunity for grace for Saul right at the very end. But as we know, he does not accept it. So, you know, it's something that we certainly can apply to ourselves. When we start down the path for some sinful thing, and God raises up even possibly an unbeliever or, or, or even some inanimate object, um, it, God can use those things to try to stymie us in our sins so that we won't continue down that. So maybe if we're going down the path of gossip or slander, and you know, maybe you partook in that in, at lunchtime here today, but if somebody cautions you and you insist on speaking against the person anyway, hey, then how are you being any different from Saul? If you stay up late binge-watching your favorite show or game for a couple days or lose yourself in a book, these things aren't necessarily as bad. But if somebody reminds you to take out the trash or, you know, you got to get up for work tomorrow, you know, and if you keep persevering, you see how you've ignored that opportunity for grace. Certainly we can talk about less severe things here for Saul. This is, this is a very serious situation, but even in it, you see God's opportunity for grace even at the end for Saul. Unfortunately, he doesn't listen. Unfortunately, he doesn't. Okay. 
And so Saul, unfortunately, refuses to turn from his sin. And even on this second occasion, it's like he ignores what the woman says. Now, I just want to know what you're seeing and what you're hearing. He presses on. Now, because she is a wicked woman, she does not stop what she's doing either. And she says, I see a spirit, is how the New King James says it here, ascending out of the earth. Uh, That word for spirit is actually the Hebrew word Elohim. Now, most of the time in the Old Testament, Elohim is the true and living God. But sometimes it can refer to gods, false gods or something. And uh, most of the time, when you see it in that way, there's something in the context that shows you it's plural, and you have that here. That word for ascending is, is, is in the plural. So it's showing that she is thinking God's, uh, not the God. And she's most likely using this term because in her pagan viewpoint, she probably had the view that when somebody dies, you become a God. And so here's one of the gods ascending. Something to that effect. Okay. <clears throat> Obviously, it's referring to Saul's spirit here. Sorry, Samuel's spirit. Um, and so hence, uh, your translation's uh, more or less paraphrasing that a bit. All right, well, let's look at verse 14. So he said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. All right, well, obviously Saul is wanting to make sure that this is actually Samuel's. You know, what's he look like? Uh, he's an old man with a mantle, and Saul's like, okay, this, this has got to be Samuel. Uh, was the mantle torn like it was in chapter 15? I, I don't know. <laughs> But again, you see, this is actually happening. This is real. This isn't just something made up. Samuel's actual spirit came. This is not a demon. This is not an angel. This is not an apparition. This is not fake. This actually happened. Hence, the repetition of Samuel's death in verse 3, which, of course, he died in chapter 25. Notice also, and I made mention of this briefly last week, uh, the term here for medium is not necessarily the best term. When you think of a medium, you think of someone who goes between, but in particular, a medium is someone who would be possessed by that dead spirit and then communicate to the live person. So if any of you ever remember the old ghost movie with Patrick Swayze and all that sort of thing, Whoopi Goldberg, that's what it was. That was a medium. Okay, the, the dead wife was possessing the medium and speaking to the Patrick Swayze character. That's not what's happening here. Okay, this woman is not possessed by Samuel's spirit. His spirit is separate. She is a necromancer here. A medium maybe in the general sense, but not in the specific sense. All right, now let me pause here also in this way. Normally, in the pagan culture when they would deal with these kinds of things, they would go through a bunch of steps to make sure it would work. So, just briefly here. They would typically use some special item to find the right place for the spirit to come out of the ground. Okay, so, you know, whatever. They would use some geotracking or something to go to the right place, you know, for the spirit to come out. 
And then they would use some special tool to dig the ground, to dig a hole, dig a pit, so the spirit can come out. Usually they put some food or a blood sacrifice in the pit. They then, of course, would have various rituals, chants to bring up the spirit. The necromancer would usually dress in a certain way. They'd put on ointments or magical ornaments and so on and so forth. Depending on the particular culture, they would do it in slightly different ways. But generally speaking, these are some of the things that would be done. So if you were to visit a spiritist today, you would see some, some very similar things. Now, I hope you don't, of course. <laughs> uh, these activities, of course, would happen at night like it is here. And then typically when they were done, they would fill up the hole and, and move on or whatever. Now in this scenario, we have clues in the remaining verses that suggest to us that this woman is in her house. Maybe a tent, maybe a special tent even. And it sounds like Saul is not in the very room where the woman is and where Saul, Sam, uh, Samuel's spirit was, but he was in another room. And we'll see some of that as we go along. All right, now this works not because the woman was especially gifted, but because God permitted it to happen to, in essence, condemn Saul because he persists in his sin. Okay. So as I said earlier, let me say again, <clears throat> this is real. Do not play around with this. Okay? It, it can lead you into such bondage in the spiritual realm and so forth. It's dangerous. God is protecting us by telling us not to participate. Furthermore, and maybe most importantly, whenever we participate in these things, whether it's necromancy or tarot cards or horoscopes or whatever it is you're trying to find knowledge apart from God and God says no you come to me any of these things is really eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil he says don't do it come to me for your knowledge okay so uh, maybe one of the most uh, significant things in our culture right now and even now after all these years is is Harry Potter and, of course, we have some of the new movies and Dumbledore movie and all this sort of thing, right? And, you know, I've read the books, I've seen the movies and so forth, right? It's, Rowling is an exceptional writer. She is very good. She has a great storyline. And especially in the books, there's some very um, commendable ideas, the right and wrong, good and evil, and especially being covered in the blood ideas that she has in the books that don't come out in the movies. Um, there's some very good things there. Unfortunately, you are forced into this world where divination that is forbidden by God is normal. Right? So you have Hermione and Ron and Harry, they're in the bathroom and there's some ghost that comes along and they're talking to the dead. It's necromancy. Oh, that looks kind of fun, right? She's jumping up and down, you know, going in toilets. And, you know, it's kind of fun, right? But it's necromancy. The normalizing of something sinful in those books and movies are why they're so troublesome. And so be careful. All right. Well, <clears throat> as we see here, uh, Saul cannot see Samuel. Maybe only the woman could. But again, it suggests that Saul is in another place, 
another room, maybe outside the tent, or but we're going to see a bed later, so it, it suggests that he's in another room. Maybe it is a tent with a bed or whatever. But notice once he is convinced that this is Samuel, he bows down in respect towards Samuel. Why didn't he do that with the Lord? And you see his response. So verse 15. Now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. All right. Well, first of all, you see that Samuel's not very happy. Okay. Why have you disturbed me? Uh, you could translate the word aroused, okay, um, like again, from the state of rest, uh, the word literally means to quake. And so it's like, like uh, uh, Saul here through this witch is, is shaking Samuel, quaking him, as it were. Now this, again, raises all kinds of questions, but let me just say here briefly, um, just because Samuel is resting in the afterlife does not mean he is sleeping. This idea of soul sleep you sometimes will hear about. Uh, but there is no indication that there is soul sleep in the scriptures. Think of what Jesus said to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. There is no soul sleep. Think of Moses and Elijah being with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They are not sleeping. Think of what I referenced earlier in Matthew 22. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are not sleeping. Okay, so there is no soul sleep. Now, they may not have the same view of time that we do, but they are not sleeping. And so here then, uh, let's think carefully about how Samuel responds. Now notice he uses the language of bring up. This then, of course, raises some more questions. Um, this would be, in the Old Testament language, a, a, an indication of Sheol, or just simply the grave. Obviously, when you have uh, a burial, right? You put them in the ground or you put them in the tomb. They're, you're going down. You become dust again. And so now he is coming up from that ground, that grave. Okay. Um, but again, let's not press these things too much. Just because you're down in Sheol doesn't mean you're in bondage necessarily if you're a true believer even in the Old Testament. Again, Moses and Elijah, they're perfectly free when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. All right, so here, again, just many questions here, but a few thoughts. Now, notice then how Saul explains himself to Samuel. His answer, as well as Samuel's question, seems to assume that Samuel does not know what's happening. He hasn't been watching or something like that. But notice then that Saul says simply that God is not helping him. And because God is not helping him, I have summoned you. I want to know what to do. God's word is not enough. God's not answering my prayers, so I need to go in a different direction. Now, if you look carefully here at Saul's response, see how many times he references himself. Now, your translation not, might not bring out all of them, but um, seven times he refers to himself in these words. A perfect, complete selfishness, you might say. Notice how many times he references God. 
One time he says God's name, okay, God here, Elohim. One time he uses the pronoun. So note this ratio, seven to two. Okay. Saul's disobedience is coming out in his explanation, too. He had turned from God, and God then turned from him. God gave him an evil spirit. Okay. So no wonder Saul is confused. All right, so verse 16. Now, in these next three verses especially, I'm not going to spend as much time on it because we already talked about this in chapter 15. And Samuel said, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? Okay, this is chapter 15. Okay, we're going to see that clearly in the next couple of verses. This is when Saul refused to kill the Amalekites, at least completely. And so... Samuel begins here by saying, why are you asking me? You already know what the answer to your question is. We do not need new revelation. We do not need special insight. We have the word of God. That is sufficient for us. Samuel already gave the word of God to Saul. He didn't need anything else. Well, you might say, well, it's, you know, 15 years later and such, maybe you forgot. Well, <laughs> you know, how many years later are we? Now, we have it in writing, of course, but yeah, the scripture is sufficient. And so I told you God is against you because of your sin. And so, therefore, I am against you. And he, he Samuel, demonstrated that by basically ignoring Saul the rest of his life. Now, let's contrast this with Saul. In these verses here, now, yes, yeah, it's, it's more words, but still, look at Samuel's focus. Six times he uses the name Yahweh, not just Elohim. Again, I don't want to diminish the name Elohim, but Yahweh is certainly much more personal, covenant Lord name. Six times he uses the pronouns, so 12 times. Samuel refers to himself three times. Do you see the difference in ratio, right? Saul, seven times himself, two times God. Now, 12 times God, three times Samuel refers to himself. And the focus is very clearly different. In verse 17, he says, And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Again, nothing has changed. God's word in chapter 15 answers Saul's question. God is bringing to pass what he spoke to me then, 15 years ago. God is tearing the kingdom from your hand, chapter 16. God is giving it to the anointed new king, David. So verse 18, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. So again, it takes us back to, to that event there. And so all that Samuel said in chapter 15 is reiterated here. Saul had opportunity to repent, but he refused to believe then. He refused to accept God's word then. He refused to repent. He refused to hand the throne over to David. He chased David. And now here he is refusing to do what God told him. And he is summoning Samuel through a necromancer. So 
So again, uh, we don't need to go these directions. We don't need a horoscope. We don't need palm readers. We don't need any of these things. We have God, his word, his spirit that's sufficient for us. Now there is a new word here, and that's verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with, uh, with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Samuel does go beyond the previous words here and tells Saul what will happen. Okay, the Philistines will win, and you and your sons will be dead. Okay, maybe within four or five hours of this event, we don't know exactly the timing of it all, but certainly within 12 to 15. Now when Samuel says, you will be with me, this, of course, again, raises these questions of the afterlife. What does this mean? Well, simply, you're going to be with me in the realm of death. That's all that he means. He is not saying that Saul is going to be in heaven okay, or something to that effect. But just you're going to be with me in the realm of death. All right, now for all of the opportunities that we have to try to figure out the future, through all of these ungodly means, knowing the future isn't always the nicest thing. Okay. And look at how Saul responds once he actually does know the future. Verse 20, immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him for he had eaten no food all day or all night. There is no comfort here with this truth. He's even more afraid. You remember, Saul was a head taller than anybody else. So his six and a half foot frame or whatever it was is stretched out on the ground, immobilized by fear. He has no strength because of what he just heard. He has no strength because he hadn't eaten in maybe 24 hours or whatever it was exactly. Okay. But again, do you see Saul's response? There's no faith. There's no repentance. There's no humility before God. There's no acceptance of God's word. Even now, we see this with Saul. We've seen it, especially since chapters 12 and following. But uh, here it is again. So verse 21, And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I have put my life in my hands and have heeded the words which you spoke to me. All right, so again, it suggests that she is somewhere else, maybe in the next room or something to the pack, that, that effect, maybe outside or whatever. Um, and so she comes in and sees his distress and says, Look, I, I risked my life to help you. You, know, you need to get up. Come on, get your act together. But notice her humility. So verse 22, now therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. Note the language here, maidservant. That word piece of bread is actually a morsel, which is used in Genesis 18 when God and the angels come to Abraham. It's a self-deprecating kind of statement here. I'm just going to give you a little bit, but of course she's going to give Saul quite a bit here. Um, in verse 23, but he refused and said, I will not eat. So his servants together with the woman urged him and he heeded their voice. 
And he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. And so initially he is continuing his selfishness, his fear, but the witch and the servants insist. So he listens. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward here. So verse 24 then. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. All right, so again, pretty straightforward here in these last verses. The witch gives Saul her best, maybe the only calf she had. We don't know, but it's certainly a possibility. Uh, probably it took a few hours to prepare this. It is unleavened bread, so she doesn't do everything. Maybe in two or three hours or something, they sit down and eat. And so verse 25, so she brought it before Saul and his servants and they ate. And they rose and went away that night. Clearly, they left before dawn, probably plenty before dawn, because as I said last time, it is quite likely that Saul went near to the Philistine camp just to get to Endor. And so he needs to get back before they can see him, right? And so that's uh, probably the case. So maybe they came, who knows, 10, 10 p.m. or something, and now they're leaving. It's 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. or something to that effect. You remember, when we started the story of Saul, we started with a meal. You remember that in chapter 9? And that meal was a meal with Samuel. When God revealed to Samuel that Saul was going to be the king. And they remember they had that feast, they had the sacrifice, they went out outside the city there in Ramah and they celebrate and, and, and Saul is basically treated like a king. The first meal was so promising. The last meal, probably literally, certainly the last one described here for Saul, is with a witch and with some very unhelpful servants. Now, as I said earlier, verses 1 and 2, we have to stop until chapter 29. While here now, we have to stop until chapter 31. But literally, within hours, Saul and his sons would be dead. And that's because of Saul's continued disobedience, and in particular, as I read last week, Leviticus 20, verse 6, he went to a necromancer, and he deserves death. God's promises in chapter 15 are finally fulfilled. So do you see the point? When we ignore Scripture... It leads to problems. When we live by fear, when we take matters into our own hands, it leads to problems. It did for David. But as you compare David, a man after God's own heart who stumbled and fell here, to Saul, the contrast is so stark, is it not? Here's Saul going through the motions of religion. He went to church every week, you might say. But there was no faith there. There was no hope in him looking to God. And so for David, God is going to be gracious to him. We're going to see that in the next two chapters, but not without consequence. For Saul, his consequence is ultimate. He is going to die. Okay. So... <clears throat> This contrast here is very, very important for us. 
We need to ask ourselves the same kind of question. Are we like David or are we like Saul? How we respond when God doesn't answer our prayers right away is very telling. How we respond when something fearsome happens in our life is very telling. Which are we like? Well, in God's grace to David, we are going to return now here to David's dilemma. Persecution is hard, but being rejected by God is far worse. There are consequences when we live by fear. And so we'll look at that here, Lord willing, uh, next time. Our Father and God, we thank you again for your word. And and in this case, uh, your word raises a lot of questions about the afterlife and so forth. Uh, Help us, Lord, to ask and and. And, and seek and, and try to understand, but may we be content with not knowing certain things. And may we, by your grace, seek you. That we would not seek knowledge apart from you, that we would not seek knowledge about the afterlife or the future or whatever in any of these ways. That we would not become enthralled with, with witchcraft and and sorcery and so forth, but that we would uh, rely on you and come to you, and that we would not uh, try to uh, manipulate the situation, but that we would uh, humbly rely on you and follow you and read your word and, and live by your word, for it is sufficient for us. And so, Lord, we pray for your mercies in this way, that um, uh, you would uh, not treat us as you did Saul, but you treat us as you did David. We pray again, Lord, that you would work in the hearts and lives of each person here who are part of this church in one way or another, that, that everyone would know you truly, imperfectly, but truly. And uh, we pray that there would be no Saul's in our midst and that you would be gracious in this way. We pray these things then in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>